Well, good morning. Great to see you all. Um, regular Westsiders, or Westsiders, pardon me. Hopefully I don't do that anymore. Short Church, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, guests and visitors, I'm really honored that you're here with us this morning. Um, one of the things we do every Sunday is we grab our Bibles and we open them. So please do that. Open your Bibles up to Colossians 1. If you don't have a Bible, didn't come in with one, don't own one, put your hand up. Our, our ushers have got some really great ones. I mean, like, really nice. These things are going to last you for decades. Really nice Bibles. If you don't have one, just put your hand up. Ushers will bring you one. Um, if you do have one, they'll go ahead, open it to Colossians 1. For those who weren't here last week, we've started a new series working through, um, you guessed it, the book of Colossians. This is one of four letters Paul wrote while in prison to various churches. Most of these churches he probably helped plant on one of his missionary journeys or had visited numerous times. But from what we can tell, Paul had not even visited the Colossian church. So the question is, what would compel Paul from prison to write a letter to this church? I mean, he's probably had to barter some goods in order to probably get parchment and a pen in in first century Middle Eastern prison. He's probably had to work together a network of people to get this letter out of prison and then travel it um, on foot, hundreds of kilometers, maybe even thousands of kilometers away. We don't really know where he was in prison. So hundreds, maybe thousands of kilometers away. What would compel him to do this? Well, what we know, uh, Paul received news of some false teaching that had infiltrated the church in Colossae. And he deemed it worthy uh, of effort, of the effort of writing this letter to expose this false teaching that was seeping in. And this, this letter to this small church, and from what we can tell, um, much smaller than we are. The church in Colossae, much smaller than us, Shore Church. So he's, he's written this letter to this small church in a dinky little hole-in-the-wall town But what's striking is that this letter has been preserved in the canon of scripture for thousands of years. And the reason why is because the same risk that was a threat to the church in Colossae is a threat to us. The same thing is going on today. The threat that some of the prevailing so-called wisdom of the age would infiltrate the church dilute down the gospel or maybe even replace the hope of the gospel. And so our study this morning through Colossians, it's, it's not just a study of a church 2,000 years ago. This is a study of something that's pertinent to us today. It's pertinent to Vancouver. This is a letter to us, Shore Church. So go ahead, grab your Bibles. Something else we're going to start doing that I love, I, I kind of I've, I grew up doing this, is standing for the reading of God's Word. So if you would stand with me. The reason we do this is because this is God's Word. If you were in the presence of a king and he were speaking, you would stand up when he entered the room. This is God's word, we believe, that's been preserved down through thousands of years for us. And so we just want to read our stand as we read. We're going to begin in verse 9 and go to 14. It's up on the screen, Colossians 1, 9. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so to walk Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of your sins. You may have a seat and I'll open us in a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you um, that you care enough about your people to, 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 to intervene. You intervened in human history, and Father, but you intervene in our lives. And we know that there's a very real threat of false teaching, both as it was in the church in Colossae, but also here. And so we pray, would your word impact our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you unearth the dark parts of our hearts that are that are hidden. I commit to you what I've prepared, Holy Spirit. This is nothing unless you show up. And so we just ask, would you make the words of Christ come alive in our hearts this morning? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, one of the things I find uh, most striking about Colossians is that in a letter that Paul is writing to address false teaching, he doesn't open up with some cold, hard, backhanded application of the truth. He opens with thanksgiving and prayer. It says in verse 9, from the day that we have heard, we've not ceased to pray. Now, we need to know, what did he hear? That's back in verse 4. Pastor James preached through this last week, but it says in verse 4 that they had heard about their faith in Jesus. And their love for all the saints, meaning the body of Christians that they were around. And I find this interesting because Paul is saying that they trust Jesus. They love the saints, but there's still something that's concerning him enough to go through all the effort of writing this letter. Beneath the surface of all the things that warm his heart about the Colossians, there's something that troubles him deeply. So what this says to us is that even if you've grown up in a Christian home, even if you went to Sunday school and then youth group and then you professed Christ and then you were baptized, maybe you even went on to Bible college. You, you met a, a good, good Christian believer there and you married them and now you're serving here on a Sunday and you're leading a community group or you're standing behind this pulpit, you're not immune. We're, there's not an immunity to false teaching seeping in. False teaching, this is what it does. It seeps in slowly, drip by drip, inch by inch, slow variance by slow variance until we're way out. And this is how it works. If it came all at once, we'd catch it. It has to come slowly. It's easy to miss the small things, especially when we think we have the big things under control. When we have the big nuggets, we miss the small ones. And isn't it ironic, don't you think? that the things we miss when we look in the mirror, we always catch in other people when we hold a magnifying glass up to them. The things we miss in the mirror, we always notice in the magnifying glass. We spot it in others, but we fail to see it in ourselves. Now, maybe it's because of past wounds. Maybe it's, maybe it's because of how somebody corrected you without grace once before. Maybe it's just your rebellious heart. <laughs> But if you're like me, you probably tend towards one of two ways when you're being corrected. First, that when correction comes, you just get hardened. Your heart just hardens. You, you resist any and all correction that anyone might bring. You wrongly believe there could be nothing wrong in you. You don't see it. So what you do is you take the magnifying glass and you hold it up to the other person and you go, how dare you bring this to me when you've got that going on? I, I detect a little sass in your voice, and therefore we, we reject all of the correction or the rebuke or 
the loving um, pointing out that somebody might be doing. So you might, you might tend towards that way, being hardened, or, or, or maybe you just get crushed by criticism. When somebody brings something, you, you just feel like there's nothing good in you at all. You go to despair. God's desire isn't either of these things with correction. It's not that it would harden us or that it would crush us, but that it would soften us, that it would draw us to him. God's desire is that through correction, we would become more like him. Paul's going to correct, but he begins this letter with thanksgiving because of the evidences of grace that do exist in this church. If you're a believer in Christ, although there might be sinful tendencies in your life, there might be things that need correction, there's much to rejoice over. There is much to rejoice over. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. There's lots to rejoice over. But there's also things that will need confronting, as Romans 8 says, as we're conformed into the image of Christ. God loves us, church, too much to let us settle for too little of him. So correction is necessary. Now, so Paul acknowledges this grace visible in them, but before moving on, note this, before moving on to correction, which we will see in coming chapters, coming verses, coming weeks, he breaks straight into prayer. He, before correcting them, he prays. And James 5, it tells us, and I think this is why, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 1 John 5.14, it says that we can have confidence when approaching God's throne, knowing that he hears us, and that if we ask anything according to his will, he does it. The scripture, it, it clearly tells us that we serve a God who both hears prayer, commands prayer, but also answers prayer. Paul begins by praying because he knows it's the most important and effective thing he can do for the church in Colossae. Paul's first weapon is prayer, and this needs to be ours as well. Now, how many of us, though, when we're facing a problem, a confrontation, a situation, we proceed straight to action without ever praying? When faced with a problem... How many of us go straight to anxiety before we ever pray? That's been convicting to me. If If we believe prayer is the most powerful thing we can do, if we believe we have a God who hears and answers prayer, we would proceed to that first. But all too often, I think we proceed straight to action. And I think there's much we can glean from from Paul here in in just seeing his approach. The, The first thing Paul does is pray. The first thing out of his holster is prayer. And I want to spend our time this morning zooming in on five things that come up in this prayer of Paul. Five things he considers vital to the growth into maturity of the church in Colossae. Things that will keep them from buying into the slow drip of false teaching that's trying to infiltrate their church. But before we go there, first note, Paul praying is not him buttering the church up before he deals them a blow. That's not what Paul's doing. And note also, Paul is not preaching. If you don't know, if you've never heard that terminology before, preaching is when somebody um, secretly corners you under the guise of wanting to pray for you and they actually want to teach you. They want to preach a sermon at you. You're all going, oh, I know that guy. Preaching is 
um, done under the guise of care, but it's actually somebody wanting to, to pray something or, or teach you something that they don't have the tact or maybe the courage to say so with words. Paul's not preaching, but his prayer preaches. And so there's five things. The first element that I want us to notice, take a look at verse nine. He says, so from the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Pray for what? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of his will. That's what he prays for. Last week we... Uh, we talked a little about some various false teachings that had infiltrated the church. Pastor James, I agree with him. He said there was many of these, um, but it's most likely not just one. It's probably a hodgepodge of different belief systems that had been infiltrating the church. And Colossae, in a lot of ways, is very similar to Vancouver. If you talk to the average Vancouverite, um, they believe really just a hodgepodge of different things. They don't adhere to any one belief system with any hard boundaries. I, uh, I, I performed a wedding last summer, or I, I officiated a wedding for uh, a great couple. They go to Westside downtown. They're a Canadian Bangladeshi family, and um, just the most amazing wedding buffet I have ever seen. Like, easily five times the amount of food that I've ever seen it. I've been to like a hundred weddings. I've never seen so much food. And so I was holding multiple plates and taking scoops of everything. I had rice next to curries, next to couscous salads, next to Indian desserts, next to West Coast salmon, next to prime rib. There was just crazy amounts of food from all over. And I got all my plates to the table and, and I looked down and I was like, this is Vancouver. This is Vancouver. This is all the things I love about our city. Just the diversity, the flavors. There's so much food here. You can get better Japanese food in Vancouver than in Japan. Our city is amazing, but in a religious context, this is also what's dangerous about our city. We take bits and pieces of everything and we assemble an a la carte belief system. Little bits of this, little bits of that. Colossi, very similar. Very similar. It's a, it was a small city. It sat at the crossroads of two important trade routes. And so it was getting influenced by all the big city culture that flowed through it. Now, Vancouver, most of us haven't lived here long enough to know, but if you read up on the history of it, before the 2010 Olympics, and especially before Expo 86, Vancouver wasn't very significant. It was quite a small city. It was these two events where we invited the world to come check us out, and they fell in love, fell in love with our beauty. And, and as one person said, we invited the world, and they didn't go home. And um, I'm very grateful for this. Like this, this isn't a negative statement. I love the diversity of Vancouver. I love the religious diversity of Vancouver. I truly believe that we're sitting on one of the most important missional moments in modern history right here in our city. We can't pass over this. And this is not me complaining about people from different countries being here. I'm from a different country. Every single one of us are two or three generations removed from being from a different country. But in Vancouver, Buddhists are not really Buddhists. In Vancouver, Hindus are not really Hindus. Sikhs are not really Sikhs. Muslims are not really Muslims. And Christians are at risk of not really being Christians at all either. What we know is that the Colossian church was rubbing shoulders with a heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism um, coming from the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis, um, which means to know 
or to have an, an experiential knowledge of something. Gnosticism, in a nutshell, it taught that the physical world was bad and uh, that the means, or sorry, the man's goal was to liberate our soul or our inner spark from the physical. The physical world ruled over by a god they would call the Demiurge. Interestingly, if you like Stranger Things, I think this is where they got the name Demigorgon from. Um, They taught liberation could only happen through the acquisition of gnosis or knowledge, and that this knowledge would help one attain both salvation there, but also liberation now. Gnosticism, it didn't hold to one centralized text or, or, or set of beliefs or dogmas. They believed knowledge was hidden among all the religions. That it was expressed through all the world's religions and all the mystical traditions. And they tended to interpret the Bible as allegorical like one of Aesop's tales. So the, the Bible, Jesus for that matter, they're just, um, they're illustrations used to communicate a larger truth. It's alive and well today. If you follow um, Jordan Peterson at all, I do. I listen to his podcasts on my cycles into work, but his work on the maps of meaning, his work through the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories, it's essentially just modern Gnostic preaching. He'd say all of our stories and sacred texts equally transmit truth that's embedded in our subconscious. That we need to learn from these stories in order to achieve liberation now. Books like The Secret reek of Gnosticism. Reek of it. They teach there's hidden knowledge that once we obtain it, we'll literally, I guess, essentially unleash a beast mode on our life. A lot of self-help titles. I love self-help genre, um, aside from Bible and Bible study and biblical commentaries and things. This is probably what fills the most of my bookshelf. I enjoy self-help, um, but underneath kind of the face of all self-help books is this idea that we can gather a certain amount of knowledge that will help us become better at work. Um, have a better marriage, find a better spouse, be more successful, be more happy, be more strong, retire the earliest. And this hunger for life hack theology, it's, it exists within the church as well. Think of um, just an easy target, Joel Osteen, who veils his Gnosticism under some Bible verses that are used radically out of context says the Bible's a collection of truths meant to give us our best life now. Uh, in his book, um, The Power of I Am, if you've, if you've seen that book around, he, he says that not only is I Am a name that God chose to reveal himself as to Moses in the burning bush, but that it's actually um, a secret weapon that we can use for our own lives. And so he's quoted as saying, whatever follows the I Am will eventually find you. Whatever follows the I am will eventually follow you. So it's not a name of God. It's, it's something about you. He says, if you say, I'm prosperous, I'm successful, I'm victorious, I'm talented, I'm creative, I'm wise, I'm healthy, I'm in shape, I'm energetic, I'm happy, I'm positive, that it will eventually happen. Maybe I think Joel Osteen should start saying, I'm not a false teacher. Because this is false teaching, and it's also Gnosticism. Gnostic ideology, it's alive and well. 
It's alive and well, and most of us probably aren't even noticing it. It's in response to this infiltrating Gnosticism that Paul prays that we would be filled, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, some of your translations that might say complete knowledge, filled with the complete knowledge. And the reason why is because of the word that Paul uses here. He could have used, when he says filled with the knowledge, he could have used the word gnosis. Gnosis was a common word used for knowledge, as we've already talked about, but he doesn't use that word. He uses a different Greek word, the word epigenosis. Now, forgive me while I get nerdy, this is important. Epigenosis is, uh, is knowledge that involves a full discernment. So gnosis was a firsthand experiential knowledge that we would gain. Epigenosis was a full discernment. It's to become fully acquainted with or to, be, to become aware of, I'm trying to put into words, a precise or correct knowledge. And using epigenosis, it would have been plain to the Greek audience who he wrote this book to that he's confronting Gnosticism. He prays they would be filled with epigenosis of God's will. For the, the word for filled here, it's, it's also interesting because it means fulfilled or completed. So he's praying that they would be fulfilled and completed by God's will, by the knowledge of God, that they wouldn't need anything else. The knowledge of God would fill them up. They wouldn't need to go around trying to gather it elsewhere, that their plate would quite literally be filled with Christ. Their plate would be full of God, so they wouldn't need to scoop on little bits of tantric breathing, little bits of this, little bits of that, little bit of whatever it is that we have the proclivity of trying to put on the edge of our plate. Ephesians 1, Paul also prays this to the church in Ephesus. He says, May God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge. This is also epigenosis. May he give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epigenosis of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he's called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is a common prayer of Paul. He wants us to see all that God has for us. He wants us to see all the wisdom that God has for us. First thing he prays is that we would stop looking elsewhere and instead we would look to him alone. And so let me ask us, church, where are we looking? What other sides are we scooping onto our plate? Where are we sampling? Where are we borrowing from other religions? Where are we treating Christianity even, maybe, like the teachings of Jesus Jesus are just cheat codes that will unlock a more pleasurable experience for us now? Now, I'm not saying following Jesus isn't pleasurable, because it is. What I'm saying is that Jesus isn't offering wisdom that we can use to get the things we want. Jesus Jesus isn't helping us obtain different treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. This is the subtle shift of this false teaching. Are we using Christianity as a means to get what we want? 
Or is Jesus what we want? In light of this epigenosis, this, this full knowledge of God, Paul prays one other thing. That they would walk, this is verse 10, so they'd be filled of the epigenosis of his will, and it says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. When Jesus is what you want, you want to please him. If gaining Christ isn't our goal, then we would, will use him to get what we want. And our, as Christians, our goal needs to be getting Christ, not pleasing ourselves. And there's no one here, most certainly not myself, who is immune to this. We live in a culture that preaches and praises following our heart, being led by our heart, our impulses, our feelings. But this idea, it's antithetical to the gospel. And it's not an effective way to live. I, I tried to figure out where I heard this quote from. I am stealing this. Um, I read this this week somewhere, and I can't remember where. It said, following your heart is like finding your way through a forest with a thermometer. Following your heart's like finding your way through your for- a forest with a thermometer. So it's, it's not an effective way to be steered. Romans 13, I th- up on the screen, Romans 13, um, verse 11 to 14, it says, The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day's at hand. It's about to come. It's right on the cusp. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies. Now this word, nobody I don't think is at risk of having an orgy here today. Maybe you are. But this word orgy, it just means like carousing, reveling, seeking to let loose. It's not even just a sexual thing. Let us not participate in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, which just means unbridled indulgence, not in quarreling, not in jealousy. Here's what he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't be led by your heart. Your heart will lead you to a hole in the ground. Be led by the epigenosis, the revealed will of God. This is his prayer. He's praying that we would walk in a manner worthy of the revelation of God's will. And remember, he's saying to this, the same, this to the same people that he praised for having faith in Christ and loving the brothers. We're not immune. No one's immune. I'm not immune. Just because I'm behind a pulpit, I'm not immune to this. We have the same pressures, the same temptations as the Colossians had pushed on them to find our joy and our pleasure in places other than the revealed will of God. Shore Church, there is a way that we can live in 2018 Vancouver that to everyone around us will look radically successful, but that will fall desperately short of God's will for ourselves. I want to say that again. There is a way that we can live that everyone around us, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers will go, they're successful, but it would fall radically short of God's will for our lives. If you want to know if you maybe tend toward this, ask yourself, who do I look at and go, man, they're successful? All the while, they have no relationship with God whatsoever. It reveals how we're defining success. 
Paul's praying here, though, that they would measure their success off of the revealed will of God. And so the question we need to ask is, what is God's will? What's God's will? How do we determine it? There's, um, well, there's two things that are referred to as the will of God in Scripture. The first is uh, God's sovereign will. This is um, God's knowledge of the future. This is often where we get ourselves tangled up in most with regards to the will of God. We try to figure out what God has for the future, what he has for us, and uh, we're, we're, we're trying to figure this out, determine it, but this isn't what we're being called to do here. Um, let God take care of the future. We just need to exist in a state of trust with him. What we're being called to obey here is God's revealed will for us, his moral decree towards us. So how do we find that out? Well, we read the Bible. We believe that this is the full revelation of God for us, that it's sufficient for all things for ourselves, that has everything that we need for life and godliness, that this is the epigenosis, literally, of God's will for us. And so we need to search this when we're determining God's will. And this this transitions us right into the third thing that Paul prays. So he's prayed they'd be filled with the knowledge that they would walk in a manner worthy And thirdly, he prays that they would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Out in the Bible, this word fruit, uh, it's usually used to describe somebody's outward actions, things kind of the byproducts of somebody's life, what comes out of them. But it's it's not just used to refer to the good things that proceed from us. It's it's whatever comes out of your life. So we might use this in a way like that conversation was really fruitful or my labor or my investments were really fruitful or the liberal party is doing fruitful economic things for our country. I don't know how you would use it, but there's also a negative connotation. Romans 7, 5, it says, while we were living in our flesh, Our sinful passion, aroused by the law, was at work in our members bearing fruit to death. So you can bear bad fruit as well. And we need to know what Paul means, though, when he's referring to fruit. I think he's pointing back to what Jesus said in in, in Matthew 3.8. There, Jesus says to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance just meaning turning, um, Turning from folly to obedience. Jesus said the way we bear fruit is in keeping with repentance. So bearing fruit by turning from our folly to obedience to his will. So the way we bear fruit is in obeying God's will. Psalm 1 to 3. This is going to be up on our screen. Psalm, um, sorry, Psalm 1 verses 1 to 3. Love this section of scripture. It says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So the fruit, what's this fruit in Psalm 1 being referred to? What does it do? It sustains us in all seasons. It's fruit that is rooted in something that won't fade or can't be taken away. So we we bear it in all seasons. 
Psalm, Psalm 1 is saying that this tree is rooted in God's law, God's revealed will, God's purposes, God's truth, the epigenosis of God's will. Now, Paul wants every believer desperately to be fruitful. This comes through in all of his writings. He wants us to be fruitful in every regard because he, he knows it's only possible for a tree that is rooted in God to be fruitful. Jesus wants, Paul wants, Jesus wants our fullness, but our fullness is found only through a connected dependence in Christ. John 15, of course, probably come to some people's minds, but John 15, it says this. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot be fruitful apart from Jesus. This is what the scripture says. If we're not rooted in the revealed will of God, we cannot be fruitful in a way that will matter at harvest time. If anyone does not abide in me, Jesus says, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's interesting, too, um, as I studied this this week, I noticed that this is the third thing Paul prays, that they would be fruitful, but it couldn't have been the second thing. And it couldn't have been the first thing. It needs to be third. Because we need the knowledge of his will in order to walk in a manner worthy of it in order to bear fruit. It's a byproduct of the second, and the second can't happen without the first. In order to be able to bear fruit that comes from, we need to know the will so that we can live in obedience. Spiritual fruitfulness is impossible apart from knowing the will of God. I'm going to just read again, verse 9. It says, And so, from the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, the question I ask is, why is he again asking that they would have the knowledge of God? That was his first point. Why is the third thing he's asking the very first thing, same thing as the first? I think it's because he wants the whole process to be compounding in the believer. He wants it to be happening over and over and over again. He wants us to taste his goodness, which will pull us into more obedience, which will compel us into more fruitfulness, which will lead to more knowledge that will uh, result in more obedience and more fruitfulness and more knowledge leading to more obedience and more fruitfulness. He wants this compounding. He wants this to be a rhythm in our lives. For in Christ, we will produce fruit that leads to life. If we're not in Christ, we're going to produce fruit as well, but it's fruit that leads to death. I just want to ask us, what's the fruit we're producing? What, what is our lives producing what are we striving for? Where are we putting down roots? To quote again Psalm 1, it says that the tree planted by streams of living water, that its leaves never fail. Where are our leaves withering? 
Where are we feeling dried? Can I suggest perhaps that's revealing somewhere where we're not rooted in the epigenosis of God, in the revelation of God, and we're looking somewhere else for satisfaction. There's some here this morning, you're tired, you're probably weary, your leaf feels like it's withering, feels like you're running on fumes, like you've grabbed every gear in your transmission and you're redlining still. You don't know what else to do. You're giving it all you've got and you feel like whatever is coming out of you, it's bitter. I've been there. Perhaps even by the standards of everyone around you, your friends and your neighbors who might look in, it looks like you're living a life. You got the house, you got the job, you got a few cars, you got the wife, you've got the kids, you got some toys for the weekends, you get to take great vacations, but inside, you're empty. Maybe you look like you got it together, you look strong, but you feel weak. Listen to this next thing Paul prays. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I love that. May you be strengthened with all power according to his might, not our own. With all power and that he prays that we would have all power and that the source of that power would be Christ. They would give... If Christ's power would give them the endurance to weather any storm, that Christ would be the source of that joy. The secret, I think that Paul wants us to see here, the secret to power and to endurance is tapping into someone else's fuel supply. As I read this, I was meditating on it. It made me think of the, the Indy 500, if you watch NASCAR at all. I don't know if that's even NASCAR. Um, used to work with people who watch car racing. But uh, these cars going around and around this, this loop. And every once in a while, they've got to pull in and get fuel. And these other cars get ahead. I get this picture of us just having this permanent connection to fuel and not needing to pull in anywhere. When we have a connection to Christ's power, it doesn't run out because he doesn't run out. And we can keep going and going and going because of Christ. We have all endurance because we're tapped into his power. It's his might. This is why joy, I think, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, is because we're cheating. We're not pulling this off on our own. It's gifted from someone else. That's why the Christian life is filled with joy. We're not running on our own efforts. Our status is not based on our own earnings or our acquisition of knowledge as Gnosticism would teach. And when we realize this, it can only lead to joy for the Christian. Short church, the, the false teaching Paul's confronting in Colossae is the notion that we can have anything apart from Christ. And I want to remind us that we cannot. It's all from him. It's all of grace. And Paul's 
This is Paul's prayer, that they would be filled with the knowledge of him so as to walk in a manner worthy of him so that they could bear fruit in every good work, so they could be strengthened with all power from him. And that as a result of all of this, all of this that they would, it would culminate in them giving thanks to the Father. Verse 12, he prays that they would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We don't qualify ourselves. And he has delivered us. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who's delivered us. We don't deliver ourselves. It's not our effort. It's not our diet plans. It's not our workout regimens. It's not our retirement plans. It's not the number of self-help books that we've read. It's not our popularity index. It's Jesus. He is the one who has qualified us. Nothing we can add brings an iota of an iota to it. The only way we're going to finish the, the, or cross the finish line of faith is if we're running on Jesus' gas. There's nothing for us to glory in but him. When we see this, I don't think we can help but praise. So the band's going to come up now, and we're going to respond in a few different ways to this prayer of Paul. First off, I want to just call us to examine our hearts and see if there's anywhere that needs repenting. Again, repenting meaning turning from folly and returning to obedience. This is an ongoing rhythm in the Christian life. No one here is immune. We're all going to need to repent many more times before we meet Jesus in glory. So use this morning as an opportunity to examine your heart and see where perhaps you've been tapped into something other than Jesus or where you've maybe been putting something else on your plate thinking it's going to give you what only Jesus can. The only thing that belongs on our plates, short church, is Christ. Then we're going to come forward and take communion after you've done some work in your heart. You take the bread, symbolizing Christ's body, dip it in the wine or the juice according to your conscience. This is to celebrate the fact that Jesus stood in your place, and instead of your body being broken and your blood spilt, it was his. So we take that and we celebrate because we're just reminded of what Paul has prayed. On top of that, we'll have a couple over here that would love to pray with you. If there's anything that you need prayer for, prayer with, a prayer partner in, please make use of that, and we're going to respond corporately through singing now once I pray. Lord Jesus, I do. I, I thank you for your radical pursuit of us. Thank you that you don't abandon us in our trespasses, in our sins, but that you run after us. Thank you that our, our standing before the Father is assured by your glorious might and not our own. Would you help us to see you more fully for all that you are? Would we be more satisfied in you this morning as your people? Would we more properly glimpse who you are? And would you forgive us, Jesus, for looking anywhere else for what only you can offer? You're all that we need, Jesus. And we choose now just to restore our vision back up to you, to turn our hearts from folly back into um, obedience to your revealed will. We pray this in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.